So we're going to hop right into our teaching in Ephesians. And, and we learned over the last couple of weeks that Ephesians is a letter. It's called an epistle. Everybody say epistle. It's, it's one of those satisfying words to say for some reason. I think I'm going to start saying it when I stub my toe. For some reason, it, uh, it's very satisfying to say. It's written by the Apostle Paul. And he had planted a church in the Roman city of Ephesus. And years later, when Paul was in prison in Rome... He wrote them the letter that we're reading and studying today. And in Ephesians 1, 3, right at the very beginning of Ephesians, Paul said this. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And over the next several chapters, Paul unpacks why he's so grateful to God. He unpacks what all these spiritual blessings are and he reveals what Jesus has done for us, how he's blessed us, how he's saved us, how he's prepared a glorious future for us, how Jesus is greater than anyone or anything. And that takes us all the way up to where we are today, Ephesians chapter three, verse 14. And this is what it says, verse 14. Paul has told us that our heavenly father has blessed us with every spiritual blessings Blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And so, verse 14, for this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul isn't speaking metaphorically. He's speaking literally. He's speaking literally. And it's really easy for us to think that when we talk about getting on our knees before God, that's all metaphorical because we see it and None of us ever go like, oh my gosh, that's on the screen, I better kneel. That that doesn't happen. But Paul is speaking 100% literally because kneeling is the posture of reverent prayer. Kneeling is the posture of reverent prayer. That's your first fill-in on your outline. It's powerful because you're forcing your body into the posture that you want your mind and your heart to take. You're getting your body into a posture of reverence and submission before God, believing that your heart and mind are going to follow. Have you ever noticed how rarely it happens when you just say, man, I'm just feeling super reverent today. I think I'm I'm just going to take a knee for a second. It doesn't really happen a whole lot. But what happens when you get on your knees in private or, or even at church as we worship is that it sends a message to your entire being, hey, we are reverent before the presence of God. Mind, you better get in shape. Heart, you better get in shape. Spirit, you better get in shape. This is what we're doing right now. Communicates that to your whole being. It says, hey, Jesus is greater than I am. When we come before him, we can come before him with boldness and reverence. But remember, we don't come before God with confidence because God has made himself less. That's not the reason we're able to come before God. We're able to come before God because through Christ, he has made us more. He's still the king of kings. He's still the Lord of lords. He didn't put on a pair of jeans and say, hey, come be my bro. He stayed in his glorified almighty state and through the blood of Jesus made us holy enough to come before him. But he's still the king of kings. And that's why Paul says, I get on my knees before him because his glory has not diminished, but he's raised us up in glory. So let me just say, this is a particularly good way to use your body in worship, even corporate worship, because it's not hugely distracting. And I I really wanted to make this point just in case we had any interpretive dancers in the room today, you know, and we're like, using the body in worship, 
I'm there, you know? Um, kneeling is a really good one because you're not at a risk of hitting anybody in the face with a flying limb or anything like that, you know? So kneeling is something you can do and it's reverent, it's not distracting to anybody else. And whenever we get together corporately, we wanna worship God, we wanna glorify him, but we don't wanna do anything that's gonna be an enormous distraction to everybody else and draw all the attention onto us. That's why my wife told me I couldn't bring my flags to church anymore. It was a, it was a crushing moment, but uh, she told me I just needed to let it go. I'm not being serious, by the way, just in case you got really scared for a minute. But I know there's this internal struggle that we all face, there's this internal struggle. And um, it's the struggle for me whenever like, I go to a Christian concert and the guy says, we're all gonna dance before Jesus right now. There's just something in me that goes like, oh no, oh no. And even if somebody says, hey, let's lift our hands together now, it's like, oh, oh no, oh no. And part of it is because I don't believe it's necessarily right to force an act of worship on somebody. Do this or you don't love Jesus, no pressure. Just please, whatever you feel. But you probably don't love him if you're not doing this. Um, but it's also because there's something in me sometimes where even without being prompted, I wanna raise my hands to God and worship, but my hands feel like they each have, you know, 50 pound weights in them, 50 pound weights in them, and it just feels like it would take so much, or it would take so much, it would be so hard to kneel. And what I've learned in those moments is that's usually an indicator that I really, really need to do it, that I really need to do it. And the reason is what we said before, that it's a physical act that communicates something to your whole being. It says, hey, all of me, we are reverent of Jesus right now. We're coming before him right now. And sometimes you take the physical action and the heart and the mind follow. You know, they say one of the, the great ways to re-spark romance in a marriage is just to fake it until it becomes real. Because there's some power in acting like you love someone and eventually your heart and mind catch up to that. And often in, in a relationship, you can get in the place where it's like, well, you need to start doing nice things for me and being more romantic, but there's no emotion there. And so if you just wait for the emotion to come back, it never does because none of the actions are there. So even in relationships, there are an infinite number of really good marriage counselors that say, listen, you need to start acting like you love your spouse. And that will stir feelings in them. And if they're doing the same to you, then this thing gets going again. And often the same is true in our relationship with God. When it's just dead, we know that God is faithful and he loves us, but sometimes we need to take a physical action that is representative of what we want our heart and minds to do. It's not magical, but there's incredible power in that. There's incredible power in that. You'll feel a spiritual breakthrough. And maybe that's your next step today as we worship after this message, just to, to do something, whether it's lifting your hands or being on your knees for a minute and just saying, Jesus, I... I want you to be in charge. I want you to be my king. I want you to be my Lord. There's incredible, incredible power in prayer. And in verse 14, Paul says this. He says, for this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. You need to catch this. Paul is in prison and he's praying for the Ephesians. They're not in prison. He's in prison. Situation seems a little bit backwards because he's the one in prison 
and he's praying for them. All of Paul's hands-on ministry has been taken away from him. It's all been taken away. He can't sit down with anybody in the Ephesian church and say, tell me about your life. Tell me what's going on. Let me disciple you. Let me give you some godly counsel. He can't say, let's sit down and do a Bible study together. He can't lay his hands on somebody and pray for them. He can't look someone in the eye and discern what's going on in their life. All this hands-on ministry has been taken away from Paul. So what does he do? He writes letters like this one. And he prays. That's what he does. He doesn't give up. It's Paul. Can't stop, won't stop. Maybe you're in a a situation where ministry has been taken away from you. And Lord willing, I don't mean that you're going to prison. Uh, What I mean is maybe there's a relationship with a friend, a spouse, a co-worker, a family member. And there's just a closed door there. Man, they do not want to hear it. You know there's no point even asking, hey, I was just thinking, you wanna grab some coffee and do a Bible study? They're just gonna give you that look like, you know? Ministry's just been taken away from you because there's a closed door. What do you do? You don't stop. You don't stop. You do what Paul does. You can pray. You can pray. And like Paul, you can know that your prayers are effective, probably even more effective than your physical presence. Because remember, Paul is displaying what spiritual maturity looks like. Paul is the guy who really understands, man, everything we deal with in this realm, the physical realm, our lives, everything we deal with is a result of what's going on in the spiritual realm. All the struggles, all the temptations, all the junk you deal with is related to things that are happening in the spiritual realm. And Paul understands, even though I'm in prison, I can influence the spiritual realm, which will influence the physical realm. Through my prayers, God can send literal angels to strengthen, protect these Ephesians in the church. Through my prayers, we can break through attacks and strongholds and addictions that are attacking that church. I still have power in the spiritual realm that will affect what goes on in the physical realm. Paul understands that, and he shows that he understands that by his prayers. He understood that even in chains, he was not powerless because God is all-powerful. The only reason to give up when ministry is taken away from you is because you believe that you're the key to ministry taking place. You and I are not the key. Holy Spirit is the key. We're just a vessel for a place and a time. And the Holy Spirit can do anything through any walls, through any prison cells. God is all powerful. And I found that sometimes God needs to remove us from a situation. He needs to remove that ministry away from us because we've started to forget that he's the only one who can bring about the real change. He's the only one who can bring about the real change. Paul also prayed because there was a direct connection between his prayer life and his love for the Ephesian church. As Christians, our prayer life reveals the things and the people that we love. 
Our prayer life reveals the things in the people we love. Do you love your spouse? Pray for them. Do you love your kids? Pray for them. Do you love your church? Pray for us. Paul first and foremost prays that the Ephesians would be strengthened in the inner man, the inner man. And Paul prays this because he understands that just as the spiritual affects the physical, so the condition of our spirit affects our entire lives. Paul doesn't pray that they'd have a bigger building. He doesn't pray that everything would be easier for them. He prays that they would be strengthened in the inner man because everything flows out of that. If the spirit is full of the Holy Spirit, the whole being will be healthy. Paul prays that they'd be strengthened where it matters most. How's your spiritual health? How is your inner man? Everything in your entire being flows out of the condition of your spirit. And what our enemy wants to do is convince you that it's some other factor. If you could just fix this, if you could just fix this, your spirit is to your entire being as your heart is to your whole body. If you've got a problem there, until you deal with it, it's not gonna go away. It's how God designed us. When I was growing up in Cape Town, South Africa, I went to this small Christian school. There were 18 kids in the class, and we had this principal. She was much more like a matriarch. Um, you know, she would have been a great Catholic nun in a Catholic school, you know. And uh, whenever we would misbehave, or, or I would misbehave, uh, she would often pull us in, and she'd just do this thing, which is, Classic Annette, that was her name. And instead of just reaming us out, she'd say, I want to tell you a story, you know, which when you're 16 always freaks you out because you're like, you're supposed to hit me. What are you doing, you know? And she would tell this story about a missionary who lived in a jungle, remote part of the jungle, and was just living there ministering to the locals. And one day one of the villagers came up to him and said, said you know, this is what's going on inside me. It's, it's like there's... A black dog and a white dog. There's a good dog and an evil dog. And it's like they're fighting all the time. And I'm just wondering which one is going to win. And the missionary said, whichever one you feed. That's all Annette would say. It was profound because the whole message was, was listen, what are you going to feed in your life? What are you gonna feed? Are you gonna feed your flesh or are you gonna feed your spirit? Whichever one you feed is going to get stronger and is going to win. Bible tells us the flesh leads to death and the spirit leads to life. Which one are you gonna feed? Paul says we're strengthened through the Holy Spirit. So how, how do we get more of the Holy Spirit? How do we feed the spirit rather than the flesh? It's, it's not complicated, and let me preface this by saying, I've never heard anybody complain about how complicated eating is. I've never heard anybody say, you know, it's been three days and I, I've just forgotten to eat. Because I gotta be honest, I mean, it's like three times a day, you gotta make the food, and you, just, you gotta remember to eat three times a day. It's, it's just too much, I got a busy life, and so days pass, and I, I just forget to eat because it's, it's so complicated, it's too demanding. I've never heard anybody talk like that, ever. Man, I never forget to eat. 
you know? I'm so committed to eating, I bonus eat just to make sure that I'm covering all the bases, you know? If you're supposed to have 1,800 calories, I do 2,800 because I'm thorough, you know? Never heard anybody complain about eating. And yet, we all try to justify not feeding ourselves spiritually every day with all the same logic. I just don't have the time. I just can't remember. It's just, it's too hard. It's too complicated. Too complicated. I'm as guilty as any of us in this area as well. But here are some things to look at when you feel spiritually emaciated and dissatisfied. Because when we feel distant and far from God, we never want to believe it's something basic. We we always want to believe we're the one in a billion exception, right? Like, no, no, there's something much more profound going on in my life. Can you prophesy over me? You know, hey, have you been spending time with God? No, no, but that's that's probably not related. (laughs) It's like, sorry to disappoint you, you know? Because what happens is you don't just stop feeding the spirit, but you're feeding the flesh instead. You're feeding the flesh. And so I wanted to do something really basic because one of the things I wanted to happen out of today's teaching is just to give you something really simple to go back to when you feel distant from God. These are the basics of spiritual health. And I wanna be clear, this is not legalism. This is not saying this is what you need to do to be a believer. I'm saying these are the things you need to do that God has given us as ways to feed the Spirit, to feel connected to God, to be full of the Spirit so we don't walk around running on fumes the whole time. Very simple. Number one, daily time in God's Word. Daily time in God's Word. I want to encourage you, if you're looking for just where to start, start with 15 minutes in God's word, start your day. And, and I wanna emphasize this. I used, to, I used to be really free and just say, just do it when you find time for it. Let me tell you what I believe. You, you do it at night, you're just trying to get it done because Pastor Pillow is calling you to fellowship, right? So you do it at night, it's that thing where you get down in bed and you're like, oh, I still gotta do my reading. And the minute you reach that place, it's legalism, it's dead. But I want to encourage you to make an appointment with God and keep that appointment. It's the best description I've ever heard because here's the thing about an appointment. If you're a decent person and you have an appointment with a friend, you don't remember that you have the appointment and just say, you know what, though? I just need to chill instead, so I'm not going to call. I'm just going to skip it. The thing about an appointment is that you keep it. Even if you're tired, you drag yourself there if you value the person you have the appointment with, right? If you don't value the person you've got the appointment with, then you say something like, you know, listen, it's just been a heavy week and I just need to spend some time with Jesus or something, you know? That's what you do. Unfortunately, you know, the truth hurts, the truth hurts. So I just need to replenish, I just need to replenish my spirit. That's what we say when we're Christians, right? We don't say I need to take a nap, I need to just, you know. Rest my soul in the presence of the Lord. Some, some heavy meditation for probably three hours or so. Really distraction free, you know. I like to close up my eyes just to, to block every distraction. Every distraction. But make an appointment with God. If you don't know where to start, just start in the Gospel of John. Start with Jesus. Read for 15 minutes a day. And don't read just to get through it. Read and ask God to speak to you through it. 
It's not a race. I don't care if you read two verses. If God speaks to you through it, that's profound. God has spoken to you, but start your day that way. If you were not eating, you'd find a way to eat. You'd get up however early you needed to get up to find a way to eat something. If you love food like I love food, you will. So find a way to have time in God's word. Second is daily time in prayer. Uh, Let me tell you a secret. I cannot sit in one spot and just pray for like 30 minutes. I can't. I'm, I'm, that, I'm that guy who can go like a good three, five minutes, and then I'm like, man, when are they going to invent a hoverboard? <laughs> That's sort of how my mind works. I just can't focus. And so there's a couple of things I've discovered that are really helpful. And one is simply pray throughout the day. It's a conversation throughout the day. If you're married, you know this. An absolutely pointless phone call to your wife in the middle of the day means the world to her when you have nothing to say. Hey, I'm just calling because this seems important to you for some reason. Means the world to her. Means the world to her. I got absolutely nothing to say. Just wanted to call. My phone's still working. Just wanted you to know I value you. But have a conversation with God throughout the day. Things that, that I like to do that are helpful that become triggers for me are I pray when I get in my car. Spend the first several minutes in my car praying before I turn on the radio. Spend the first couple of minutes as soon as I get out the car praying, wherever I'm going. If I'm going to meet with someone, I start praying for them. If I'm going to a place, I pray that I would have an opportunity to have a God encounter with somebody. And I put these little triggers in. I pray as I come in my house, as I walk up the stairs, I'm praying for my family. Just these little prayers throughout the day so that your awareness of God stays with you throughout the day. Other things I like to do, I love to pray with worship music in the background, and when I run out of things to say, I don't do the usual Christian thing, which is just start repeating the same thing again and again, or just going, Jesus, Jesus. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> but you have a worship song on, and you, uh, you know, you start singing along to the worship song, and it's incredible what that does. It just keeps you in that zone with the Lord. And then finally, keep a prayer journal. Have you ever noticed that when you sit down to pray, suddenly you can't think of anything to like pray about? So keep a prayer journal, and all this is is this is a list of things you're praying for. Small notebook is what I have. And when somebody says, hey, would you pray for me, and I say yes, Now I'm actually telling the truth because I'm going to write it down and I'm actually going to pray for them. It's not going to be a thing where I see them next time and quickly pray for them before I go say hi so that I can say, I've been praying for you (laughs) these last 20 seconds, you know? (laughs) Have a prayer journal and it's incredibly powerful because here's what's going to happen. God is going to move. He's going to answer your prayers and when you get to cross something off your prayer list, man, that builds your faith. You don't rip that page out, you leave it in. And then when you're filled with doubt, when you're filled with fear, you go back to your prayer journal and you look through all the things that you've crossed off. And every one of those are proclaiming he's faithful, he's faithful, he's faithful, he's faithful. It becomes an incredible thing and it's so, so easy to do. Take your prayer journal with you in the car. Just an easy way to really get into prayer. Thirdly is daily time in worship. Daily time in worship. And here's just a practical point for this. Listen to worship music. Listen to worship music. You know, my my greatest fear used to always be, man, I I just want to stay current with music because I don't want to be that guy that just stops listening to new music. 
and starts talking about how great it was when I was in my early 20s. I just don't want to be that guy. But more important than that is keeping my spirit fed. It really is. And you will not believe the difference it makes when half or more of the music that you listen to is glorifying to God. It's incredible. I have some of my best worship times in the car, driving to places. Profound experiences with God. To the point where sometimes I get somewhere and people are like, uh, have you been crying? It's like, no, I'm uh, just really glad to see you because uh, I've been praying for you. And uh, <laughs> so, uh, so listen to worship music. Listen to worship music. Spend the money. Just get your hands on it somehow, and you'll see that it has a dramatic effect on you. Even with my kids, man. My kids don't get to listen to the Wiggles. They don't get to listen to the Wiggles. Wiggles isn't going to feed their inner man. It's not going to feed their spirit. It'll help them to distinguish the difference between a red car and a blue car, but it's not going to feed the spirit. So we make sure that we feed their spirits. I do my best to make sure that I feed mine as well through, uh, through quality music that's glorifying to God. Fourthly is regular fellowship with other passionate believers. I want you to notice I put passionate on there. Do not spend your time around believers that make Jesus boring. Don't do it. Don't do it. You can spend your time with anybody. Choose carefully. Choose carefully. And here's what I know. For, for most of us, we have jobs and occupations that put us around non-believers nine to five, all day. You're doing that four days a week, 40, 50, 60, 70 hours a week. You need some encouragement from other believers. You really, really do. Seven days, Sunday to Sunday, that's too long to go without being encouraged. And please get what I'm saying. I'm not saying spend time with people who are good people because Christians are not the only good people. I'm saying spend time with people who are passionately in love with Jesus. The kind of people who when you leave spending time with them, you're more in love with Jesus than you were than when you arrived. You need to spend that time with people. And, and so I want to encourage you, if that's you and you say, I just don't have anybody like that in my life right now, Join a growth group here. We meet on Wednesday nights right in the middle of the week for that one purpose, to just read the Bible a little bit together, to talk, to pray, to encourage one another because we need it. We need it. Get yourself that fellowship regularly in your life. Fifth is regular reflection on the cross through communion. Regular reflection on the cross through communion. We do it every week and we do it for a reason. We don't do it once a month because I don't know what your track record is, but I mess up more than once a month. I mess up a lot more than once a month. And here's what I see Satan love to do. When you mess up, Satan's next step for you is always isolation. He comes in and he says, okay, you, you've really messed up. How can I guilt you? How can I shame you into isolating yourself? We've been saved by grace, but when we mess up, this, this thing rises up within us that says, you gotta, you gotta fix this yourself. And we buy into the lie of, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna fix myself, I'm gonna, get a, uh, I'm gonna skip church this Sunday, I'm, I'm gonna try and get a good run together of a couple of days so that I can feel good about myself when I go to be with other people. Uh, we forget what, what church is, what communion is. Communion is about going to the cross, is what it's about. And we go to the cross because we need Jesus. 
You can't go to the cross until you're okay with the fact that you need Jesus. I need him. And when you take communion, here's what it does. It reminds you, son, daughter, it is finished. Jesus has paid for it. You're you're holding in your hands, you're tasting in your mouth the physical, visceral reminders that this is real. Just as this is real going into your body right now, the blood of Jesus that covers your sin is real. It's real, and you're reminded of that, and you're made one with Jesus, and you're reminded it is not about being saved by grace and then trying to stay saved by works, but it's about the grace of Jesus. And you need that reminder every week because Satan's plan is to isolate you, get you alone. You should feel ashamed of yourself. You, you shouldn't be around those people. You're, you know, maybe get a good run in, and then you can feel holy enough to be around other people. The church is a place to gather around the main idea that we need Jesus. We need Jesus. And we're here to celebrate the fact that he has found us. He's found us. We need communion. And that leads into the final and sixth thing that feeds the inner man, that feeds our spirit. And that's church. That's church. Church is enormously important. I'm, I'm so passionate about this, not just because I'm a pastor, but because the average believer in North America goes to church once every three or four weeks. And they, they feel that that makes them a regular church attender. And what that tells me is if you're in the pattern of coming once every three or four weeks, it's because there, there's a box in you that you wanna check and you know, man, going to church makes me feel good. I think it makes me closer to God. Um, and it, it takes the guilt away when I go to church. I feel better. And I want to suggest that it might be legalism at that point. You're just trying to follow some rules to feel a little bit better about yourself. But when I come to church, I come to church every week because I feel like, man, I, I need this. I need this. There's nothing better for me than being around other believers who love Jesus, singing and worshiping with other believers who love Jesus, getting into the word of God with other people who love Jesus, having communion. Jesus wants us meeting together. He says, do not give up the practice of meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but do it all the more as you see the day of Christ's return approaching. Do it all the more. It needs to be one of the central things in our life. And, and here's why. If you're at church, you know every seven days you're gonna be invited to be made whole with Christ, to repent of anything that's blocking your relationship with him through communion. You know you're gonna be encouraged through the word of God. You know you're gonna have an encounter with the Holy Spirit. You know that. If not, suddenly you might get isolated and now there's 28 days, 21 days, a month and a half that Satan has to go at you to isolate you. It's as simple as this. How far can you get from God in a week? How far can you get from God in two weeks? How far can you get from God in three weeks? That's why it's an enormous priority in my family and it always has been. Because even for myself, for my kids, I know the further away I get from God, it just snowballs and it becomes easier and easier and easier to just numb the Holy Spirit and turn down the volume on his voice. 
I need it and we need it. Make, make it a priority. It feeds your spirit. These are just some of the things that are core things that fill us with more of the spirit. And so hang on to your outline. Keep it in your Bible. And when you feel dry, when you feel disconnected from God, the, these are the basics. Don't fall into that trap of saying, I'm gonna wait till I feel really connected with God before I pray. I'm gonna wait till I feel really connected with God before I get into the word because those are the very things that make you connected with God. They make you connected with God. Have an honest assessment of where you're at in your own life. Let's go on in verse 17. It says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. It's only by faith that we're saved. Continuing in verse 17, that you being rooted and grounded in love. Being rooted and grounded in love. In our marriage series, we spoke about the idea that you cannot display love to another person until you've encountered the love of Jesus. You have no idea what real love is until you've encountered the love of Jesus. The Bible says God is love. Jesus is the very definition of love. Hallmark doesn't get to determine what love is. God is the standard of what love is. And you have to know him in order to know what love really is. Paul's prayer is that the Ephesians would be rooted and grounded in the love of Jesus. And the idea is very simple. The idea is that nothing else can root you. Nothing else can ground you. Nothing else can make you able to stand strong in life other than the love of Jesus. The entire Christian life is a response to this verse. He loved us first. He loved us first. Jesus began our relationship in love. We see the love of Jesus, we experience the love of Jesus, and then we're able to reflect that love to the world, but you can't reflect Jesus if you're not aimed at him. You can't, it's pointless. When you really understand that, that you're loved by Jesus Christ, the almighty God of heaven and earth, the King of kings and Lord of lords, when you really understand that that God loves you, the winds of life can blow, the, the storms of dark times can roll in, the tide of fear and doubt can come surging in, and you will stand firm. You will stand firm because none of those things will change the fact, the truth, that you are loved by Jesus Christ. None of those circumstances change that truth. And when you know that, you are grounded, you're rooted, you know what your life is built on, and nothing can shake you. In 1 John 4, 18, it says, perfect love casts out fear. In Romans 8, 31, Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Rooted and grounded in love. Let me, let me put it this way. If life is kicking your butt, okay, and you feel like circumstance rolls in and you're just being thrown about by the wind, thrown about by the waves of life, let me ask you, are you rooted and grounded in love? Are you able to look me in the eye and say, I know, I know, I'm loved by Jesus. I know that in such a real way that I know it's gonna be okay because he loves me. This part of Paul's letter right here is one of the most 
emotional parts of his letter to the Ephesians because Paul actually begins pleading with them. He begins pouring out his heart and you really get to see how he feels about these people in one of his churches. And it's emotional for me because this is, this is what I want for your life. This is what I want for my life. This is really it. This is the reason this church exists. And we, we don't do this so that we can get to heaven one day. And that's the only reason. We do this because we want to see our entire lives transformed by Jesus. This isn't just about the next life. This is about this life. What Jesus can do in our lives here and now. The, the gospel is so radical. Jesus is so much more worthy of our time and talent and treasure than anything or anyone else. And if we could get that, we'd be a fearless people. We'd be a fearless people who are full of joy in every circumstance. We'd be people that see God do the miraculous on a regular basis. Paul's heart is crying out, I want you to live in everything that God has for you. Everything. And his plea starts with a prayer that they would be rooted and grounded in love. When life gets difficult, do you find yourself drawing away from God? Do you find yourself drawing away from the church? Do you doubt that God is gonna take care of you? Are you overwhelmed by fear and anxiety? Be rooted and grounded in love. Be rooted and grounded in love. Make your greatest goal understanding how much Jesus loves you. And ask him to show you. Ask him to show you, and he will. In the parable of the sower, Jesus talks about four types of soil. The sower throws out the seed, and and the birds come and eat some before it ever takes root. Some lands on, on stony places and sprouts up right away, but withers quickly in the heat of the sun. Some fell among thorns and and was choked by them as they tried to grow. And some landed on good ground and produced a great, great harvest. And Paul's desire for the Ephesians is that they would be rooted and grounded in love. That they wouldn't be shallow believers. That they wouldn't be believers like the second type who who landed on stony ground and they sprouted quickly but when the heat came they died because they didn't have any roots to get any moisture. Didn't have any roots to get any nourishment. Paul says, "I, I don't want you to be like that. I don't want you to have an encounter with Jesus. If you remember being a teenager who grew up in the church, I always say, I don't want it to be a camp high. I don't want it to be a camp high where you get so excited, you have this encounter with God, but man, you don't put down any roots. There's nothing in your daily life that feeds you. And as soon as the heat turns up in your life, man, you wither. You wither, because there's nothing there. There's no substance there. Paul says, I don't want you to be like the second type who, who landed in soil, but there were weeds there. Other versions of the parable say they're choked up by the cares of this world. And, and for me, these are believers who love Jesus. They believe in God. They were excited about God at one point. But without even realizing it, the cares of life just overtook them. Somewhere along the way, the career became more important than the relationship with Jesus. Somewhere along the way, the, the kids' sporting events became more important than church. Somewhere along the way, the, the bigger, faster car became more important than asking God what he wanted you to do, 
with those resources. And nobody does it intentionally, it's just life, which just somehow takes over, and before you know it, you realize that your life is prioritized around the exact same things as everybody else's. Everybody else's. You're chasing all the same things as people who don't believe in God. And it happens like that. Paul says, I don't don't want you to be like that. I don't want you to be like that. That you would be rooted and grounded in love. That that you would understand that Jesus loves you so much that it would turn your world upside down. It would change everything. He's pleading with the Ephesians to root their entire lives, their emotions, their happiness in Christ. He says, find it in Christ. In the Old Testament, God gave Abraham the promise we talked about as we received our offering this morning, that that he would be given an incredible amount of land. And God actually lays out the borders of that territory in Genesis 15. He says, from here to here, here to here. Giant amount of land. This promise wasn't just for Abraham. It was for the nation of Israel. So when Abraham passed away, the promise was passed on to the Jews. It stands for the Jews. He would give them the land, but, but they would have to take it. You can read about that story in, in the life of Joshua where God says, I've given you a promise, but your part is faith. It's the way it always is, right? God gives you the promise, but your part in this is faith. Your part is believing me enough to step out. You'll get to walk on water. I'll make you walk on water, but you gotta get out the boat. You gotta go do it. And so with all this land, God said, I'll give it to you, but you gotta go take it. You gotta go take it. And you see that in the story of the life of Joshua who does battle after battle, and God does miraculous things like making the sun stand still so that they can win one of the battles because they needed more daylight. Just crazy stuff. You have the story of Jericho that many of us know. Incredible, incredible things. But when it's all said and done and they end up in the promised land, there's one fact you might have never been told before. It's incredibly sobering. When the Israelites make it and it's all said and done, they only ever take 10% of the land that God promised them. They only ever take 10% of the land that God promised them. You can go look it up online. You can look up the, the borders of the promised land that I put on your uh, outline, the reference, Genesis 15, 18 to 21. You can go find a map of that and then go, go find a map of the area they took, even modern day Israel. They only ever took 10%. It's really interesting. Here's something interesting if you're into prophecy and things like that. When Israel was formed as a nation in 1948, they had the roughest start of any nation ever. The same day that the United Nations made them a nation, five surrounding countries declared war on them. <laughs> the same day, it's doc- documented history, all the five countries around him declared war on him, and they outnumbered Israel 20 to one, 20 to one. Israel had been a nation for one day, and they totally decimated the five countries, totally decimated them, and ended up with more land than they started with. And so there's actually a lot of biblical scholars who believe because that promise is an eternal promise, if Israel ever tried to take any of that land even today, they'd get it because it's an eternal promise. They've just never taken it. They've never taken it. But this is one of the most tragic details in the entire Bible. And Paul is pleading with the Ephesians because 
they're in an affluent place. Ephesus is an affluent place. Most of the people in the church are middle class, middle upper class people. As we've talked about, there's so many parallels to the greater Vancouver area. And the greatest danger facing the Ephesians is the greatest danger facing you and I. The greatest danger facing you and I is settling for so much less than God has for us. So much less. That's the greatest danger. Getting so caught up in things that do not matter that when it's all said and done, you experience 10% of what God had for you. 10%. Because you got distracted. The Israelites didn't ever actually say, you know, 10% is enough. You know what happened is they started building cities. And they started saying, you know, I'm tired. I'm tired. I think I'm just going to chill for a while. We've got enough land for us. So let's just stop. And instead they said, what I want from God is enough to make me comfortable. And I'm willing to have faith if it means I get to a place where I'm comfortable. But when I'm comfortable, I just want to stop. I just want to stop. That's what happened to the Israelites. Nobody made a a defined decision. Let's just stop at 10%. They just got caught up in life. They started believing that life was all about being comfortable instead of believing life is about faith. Life is about seeing God do things through you that you can't even conceive of. It's about seeing the power of God flow through your life in this day, this age, this place, this city. That's what it's about. It's about the glory of God. It's not about you. It's not about me. That's the greatest danger facing us. Paul says, guys, please get it. Please get this. Don't waste your life. Don't waste your life. In verse 18, it says that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Oh, that we would understand the greatness of the love of God for us. Paul says to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge because it's so easy for us to make this all about acquiring more information. Saying I I understand on a mental level what Jesus has done for me. Man, I I can even defend the cross rationally and scientifically. But man, if you are not overwhelmed on an emotional level by the love of Jesus, might I suggest to you, you don't get it. You don't get it. Because what Jesus has really done for you overwhelms every part of you. It blows your mind. It overwhelms your heart. The love of Christ is more than knowledge. It's more than knowledge. He died for you. He died for me. So much more than knowledge. Paul says if if you could get this, if you could get this, that Jesus really loves you, it would turn your world upside down. It would change your priorities. It would move you to always put God first. Uh, That's how I want to live at the end of my life. The one thing that I hope is able to be said about me is that I did everything God put me on this earth to do. I did it all. 
I don't even care what those things are. But I don't want to find out one day, hey, we're, you're in paradise, your eternity's going to be awesome. Just so you know, here, here's some things that I wanted to do through you. Here's what I would have done through you if you just kept trusting me, even when it was hard. Man, I don't, I don't want to miss out on that. We moved here and we started this church because at the heart of our family is this desire that says, I want my own God story. I do. I don't want to spend my whole life talking about miracles that happen to other people. I don't want to spend my whole life telling stories about other people who had great faith and saw God do great things. I want my own stories. I'll do whatever it takes to get them. And if Jesus has overwhelmed your life, that becomes your highest priority. Man, I'll, I'll do it. I'll walk through the fire. If at the end of it I'm able to say, I saw God move in my generation, in my lifetime. I saw it with my own eyes. That's what I want more than anything. More than anything. I can't stress this enough. Jesus, Jesus wants to do amazing things in your life. Amazing things. So that he can do amazing things through you and for you. Nobody has a more significant plan for your life than Jesus. Nobody. Nobody will lead you to do more things that matter. You and I can't just pick and choose things that will have profound meaning. Only God knows. And he says, I want your life to be spent on things that matter. And those are the things that I've lined up for you to do with your life. If you'll walk with me. If you want to experience your own miracles, your own God stories, it will require you to trust him with everything you have. Everything you have. You have to be all in. It'll take all of you. But it's worth it. It's worth it. And if your love has penetrated your heart, and if you're rooted and grounded in his love, then you'll gladly trust him because it will be the only logical decision. It'll be the only logical decision. I love the way Paul closes Ephesians 3. This, this might become our church's official prayer. It really might. It says this in verse 20. Now to him, the Father, who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now, I, I, I love that because the Father calls us to glorify Jesus and Jesus always reflects that glory to the Father. So as we lift up Jesus in the church in our own lives, the Father is glorified also but you have not been called to an average life. You haven't, you haven't been called to normal. You have not been called to normal. God, God wants to do something in your life that will cause people to look on and say that, that's amazing. At times they'll look on and say that's crazy. But later on they'll look on and say, how, how did that happen? How is that possible? That's when you get to say, let me, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you a story. God wants to reveal his glory through you and in you. Through you and in you. Uh, I plead with you. 
as the pastor of New Hope, I plead with you, do not waste your life. Do not waste your life. Don't waste your life. Don't settle for things that don't matter. Don't fail to trust God even when it's hard. Persevere. See God do something amazing in your lifetime with your life. Get your own God story. Don't let your life become about the same things as people that don't even believe in God. Don't do it. Don't waste your life. Don't waste your life. The things that impress people here are gonna be meaningless in eternity. I was talking about this with a friend, even having the great goal of, man, I've got, I've got to see all these places in the world before I die. That reveals a fundamental misunderstanding about what heaven is. Fundamental misunderstanding. Do you understand that if you saw the most beautiful places on earth and you got to take a scrapbook to heaven and you showed anyone in heaven, from their perspective, it would be like saying, I visited this trash dump and I visited this one and this one because wherever you were standing in heaven when you did that would completely blow away everything in that book. There's no corner of heaven that doesn't blow away the most beautiful thing on earth. So you can spend your whole life acting like you've got a limited time on this earth. And what you're saying is, you're saying, I I don't really understand how much better heaven is than here. So I've got to hoard. I've got to see all these things. I've got to do all these things. I've got to get all this stuff because I've got limited time. Instead of saying, praise God, I've got limited time till I have everything. Praise God. I don't need to have it here. Here's what I do have limited time for. Letting Jesus know how grateful I am that he loves me. I'll praise him for eternity, but in this life, the decisions I make, what I make my life about, can be one giant act of worship and scream out to God, thank you, thank you. I got limited time to do that. I got this one life to show God how much I appreciate his love. That's what I've got limited time to do. So no, I don't have time to waste. I don't have any time to waste on things that do not matter. I don't have time. Because I'm gonna spend eternity in the presence of Jesus Christ where I will lack nothing, nothing. Live for Christ with everything and you'll see the glory of God in your lifetime. You gotta get this in verse 21. It says, to him be the glory where? In the church. In the church. And when we gather together as the church, our purpose is to see Jesus glorified. That's our purpose. To see him glorified as we worship him together, as we seek to know him more through studying his word, as we pray together, as we remember the cross through communion, as we serve one another with the gifts he's given us. It's all for the purpose of glorifying Jesus in our gathering. That's what New Hope is all about. We, we exist to reveal Jesus and see him revealed. That's it. That's the purpose of the church and everything else flows out of that. Never, ever, ever forget that the ultimate destiny of the church, capital C Church, the ultimate destiny of the church is to be the bride of Christ. That's the ultimate destiny of the church. The church exists for Jesus now 
and in eternity. If you're a believer and you're in this church, you're called to help in that mission, glorifying Jesus, glorifying Jesus. So if this is your church and you're a believer, man, that's why we serve, that's why we give, because that's the mission of the church, to see Jesus glorified. If this is your church, if this is becoming your church and you're not doing those things, I wanna encourage you boldly, you need to start. You need to start partnering with all these other believers in the mission of glorifying Jesus. That's why the church exists. Everything flows out of that. And Paul says that Jesus receiving glory will go on forever and ever. And the idea is that the things we do here are simply the beginning of what's gonna continue for eternity. Do you realize that we have moments together that are the closest we can get to heaven on this earth? If you ever had that moment in worship where you're just caught up, you can't, you can't even name the person standing next to you because you're just caught up with God. You're just overwhelmed by him. Man, that's just a preview of something to come. You ever had that, that moment in communion where it just hits you? Man, Jesus, Jesus loves me, me, and he knows everything about me, and he still loves me. That moment of being overwhelmed, that will continue for eternity, eternity. But in heaven, we'll experience those moments without ever getting tired. In heaven, I will enjoy Jesus, and I'll never start thinking, when are they going to invent hoverboards? I'll just enjoy him. I'll be able to stay in that moment just forever. As I walk, as, as I think, I'll be in that moment all the time. My arms won't get tired. Somehow, when I dance before the Lord, I'll look cool. It'll be amazing, you know? This is what heaven is gonna be like. It's gonna be incredible with no limitations. And what we wanna see happen at New Hope is we, we wanna build a church that's as close to heaven as possible. That's what we want. We want people to walk in. We want your friends who come to church with you that you invite to say, man, I, I don't even understand what's going on, but something is going on. There's something going on here. Jesus is the best thing we have to offer people. He's the best thing we have to offer people. I can't wait for heaven. And I, I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know what's going on in your life, but, but I know God wants to do amazing things through you. How amazing? Exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think. That amazing. He says, above all that we ask or think because Paul understands we don't even know what to pray for most of the time. We don't know what God has lined up for us most of the time. God says, I've got things planned for you you can't even comprehend of yet because what you think your potential is and what I made you to be are so very different. God says, your vision is limited. Mine is unlimited. Mine is unlimited. I'm gonna do more through you than you can even imagine in your wildest dreams because you don't even know how to picture it yet. And before we finish our study today, I want to encourage you to underline the word able in verse 20. Able. God is able. He's able. Not only does God say, listen, I would love to do great things in your life. God says, I'm able to do great things in your life. I'm able to do great things in your life but it all starts with being rooted and grounded in love. 
It all starts with being rooted and grounded in love.